0: You are listening to the F11 Photography
1: Podcast.
0: chasers of light, to the purveyors of pictures, to all of you listening, this is the F11 Photography Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Deal, along with your other host, Brandon Gorey,
1: Oh yeah, baby, we're out here. I've got a nice pepperoni calacci, fresh cup of coffee. Let's record some. Uh, let's record some stuff.
0: Yeah, the uh, pepperoni calacci. So there is a place uh, really close to our studio that we eat at that makes awesome calacches. And uh, if you've ever been to Texas, uh, people here are like, "Oh, you got to go to this place or that place for good calacches." And a lot of times, the recommendations fall short of expectations. I will say that this place lives up to the hype. They also brew their own beer. So if you could have kolaches, coffee, and beer, what more would you need in life? We have been on break. So we record these episodes in clusters, and then we mix and mingle when we reconvene. And so this is our first set, first episode in this cluster. So I've been away, we've been away, and we're now just sitting down and mixing and mingling. Wow,
1: that is so good.
0: Yeah, he loves those. He loves those kolaches. So, uh, so I don't know what you've been up to lately, other than shooting. Uh, I've been in a YouTube rabbit hole lately. You know, they say, uh, you know, if you're a drug dealer, don't don't uh, you know get high on your own product. And as somebody with a YouTube channel, uh, I have fallen into the trap of watching other people's YouTube channels. And uh, my latest obsession on YouTube is that I like to watch uh, videos of like professional composers musical composers reacting to music that I've listened to for years and years and years that I've loved. And for those of you who may be new to this podcast, I am a musician. Uh, I've done a lot of uh, DJing, uh, composition, uh, done film scores, uh, scores for uh, video games, things like that. And so I have a, a musical background. I've played in bands and all that. And so I enjoy music at that level. And then, of course, there's the pure listener who is just somebody who really appreciates music but may not be a musician. And so it's just really cool seeing these uh, composers who are way more advanced than I ever was as a musician just, like, kind of validate your feelings about your favorite bands and your favorite songs. And maybe even, like, uncover some nuggets that you didn't even uh, notice because you've listened to the song a thousand times and just haven't noticed. And on this persons first listen, because they know what to listen for. I can see things, hear things that you don't, but that's been my, uh, that's what I've been up to lately. It's been driving my wife crazy. Cause I'll like listen to three or four different composers, uh, reactions to the same song. So I'll spend like three hours watching videos about the same song. And she's like, what are you doing? Like, God, ah, I'm just, uh, you know, being bored. So,
1: well, <clears throat> what I've been doing, that's, uh, that's awesome. Kevin, you know, I'm really happy for you. I'm glad you're finding your way through the musical space in new light. You know, that's great. Kevin's over here chuckling. Um, no, what I'm, I'm soon to buy a professional archive level printer with 16 colors, really looking forward to it. It's going to be a big investment. So I've been, I've been binging YouTube videos on color correcting and prepping large, large files for print. And that is a really cool rabbit hole. I mean, the the C-Y-A-N or whatever the hell, or the C-C-M-Y-K. C-M-Y-K. C-M-Y-K, yeah. cyan,
0: magenta, yellow. Yes. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a nightmare, dude. Uh, but can't wait to get into it.
0: Yeah, I remember I had to learn all that in, uh, in school when we did uh, photography classes. They'd be like, okay, you got to take your file and convert it to C-M-Y-K. And, you know, from what I've been, I mean, getting your own printer is awesome. I'm I'm like, I'm more of the opinion, uh, unless you print all the time, you're going to make art galleries. But I just, you know, find a, find a, a print house that will... Uh, little, little did things for you and you build a relationship with. So,
1: well, I will say this, uh, not a lot of people know about this, but I did shoot an entire budgeted 14 man crew um, um, curated photo shoot while I was in Kiev in 2021. And we rented out an entire, we rented out an entire floor of the Kiev School of Film, uh, the Budvkinor, if anyone knows it. It's a, it's a, over a hundred years old. It's where a lot of the greats went. I think um, I think Alexander Dovzenko, uh taught there, and he, he was big in early Soviet cinema. So I have an entire shoot that, that I did there with, with a gaffer, a couple stylists, actors, you know, we, we paid for a van to get all this lighting equipment and everything. And only four or five people have, have seen it. It hasn't even made the light of day, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to finally debut this very near and dear shoot to me um, at a gallery in Austin.
0: And I was at the Kiev School of Film, and uh, we actually broadcast from the Austin School of Film here in Austin, Texas. Yeah, so damn right. Yeah. Um, so a uh, running joke on this podcast, I think this is our 13th episode we've recorded. A uh, running joke on this podcast is that uh, we don't have sponsors, and uh, everything must come to an end, and now we are sponsored. So Luminar Neo is an easy-to-use software that comes in both standalone and plug-in versions. It's an editor. It's powered by AI. AI is all the rage, uh, but this is not a bunch of hype. There's actually some really cool AI in there. I'll tell you briefly about it. It comes with really cool things like Accent AI, Structure AI, and Sky AI if you're doing sky replacement. It has some really cool modules that I've already been taking advantage of, like Relight if you're a natural light photographer and you have... Uh, Situations where you want to preserve your highlights in the background and then your subject is a little too dark and you didn't bring your flash with you because you're a natural light photographer, which is a roundabout way of saying you don't know how to use flash, by the way. But let's say you're doing a natural light shoot. uh, You can use this really cool uh, AI AI feature called Relight and it will uh, make your foreground a little brighter, light up your subject a little more and then preserve your background. So that's pretty cool. They have power line removal, uh, dust spot AI, mask AI. They have layers Uh, They have a portrait background removal and then they have extensions like HDR merge, noise AI, super sharp AI, upscale AI, background removal and focus stacking. So, uh, I just wanted to let you all know about that. It's really cool software. I'm super stubborn. I'm a Capture One Photoshop user. And when they approached me about uh, doing uh, sponsorship, I was like, eh, well, let's see. And sure enough, a lot of the modules and AI that they have, first and foremost, integrate as a plugin in Photoshop. So I don't even have to use the standalone version if I don't want to, but you could if you want to catalog things and all that. And I find that a lot of their uh, AI modules do things faster for me than I can do them for myself in Photoshop where I have to take several steps. I can just go, hey, I want to, you know, I want to make the eyes bigger, or I want to change their color, or whatever, or I want to just do a really quick skin retouch. Um, you know, nothing that's like beauty or anything, but a pretty quick skin retouch. It'll get that done super fast for you. Uh, we're going to leave a link in the description below where you can get 10% off. Use our code and uh, yeah, check that out. But on today's episode, the theme is going to be. The future of photography. What do you see camera companies uh, doing moving forward? Innovations you'd like to see to move the photography industry forward. Innovations that might put some of you out of work. That's what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. And since our sponsor creates AI uh, software, I think we're going to start today's episode with artificial intelligence. Uh, AI is the rage i went to wppi in las vegas last month and literally any software company had ai and something on their software that is where things are going Uh, ai can be uh, a great thing a powerful tool if done right uh no, I did not see the Elon Musk fears when I was there at WPPI. There were no uh, Terminator rising machines with the little predator lasers uh, pointed at my forehead. The 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 editing software, it's still there to uh, retouch, skin and take power lines out and all that. Uh, if that changes, I'll let you know. But so far, the AI is just doing very peaceful things and making my life a lot easier. That being said, AI could put some people out of business, um, particularly editors, because at WPPI, and we talked about this in a previous episode, there was the Imagine booth. And Imagine was this software that basically uh, analyzes all your edits. Not like, oh, you use this preset all the time, so we'll, we'll, you know, We'll apply this preset, but it's like, no, we notice that you like to bump the contrast up in situations where you're shooting into the sun because you lose contrast when you shoot in the sun. So we notice you've been doing that. So we're going to do it for you. We notice you like to use masks. We notice that you like to um, anytime a backlit subject needs to be uh, lightened up because they basically look like a shadow. We notice that you lift the shadows there. You draw a mask in. we're going to do it for you. We notice that you like to crop at five by four because you're probably an Instagram photographer or one by one. We'll do that for you. And so this is all built in two software. And I watched someone send this to the AI and it edited a wedding in less than five minutes. Now, if you've ever shot a wedding, you know that you're not taking five or 10 pictures. You're probably taking at least a uh, thousand, if not like 2,500 shots throughout the course of an eight hour day when you shoot a wedding. And it just takes the data. I don't know what the Lightroom calls it. I don't think it's the XF data. I think they have some other name for it, but it takes it and it analyzes all your edits. It's not you're not uploading the files to the server online. You're uploading all of your uh, information about your edits. And so it knows, oh, when I have this much light and color of this kind inputting in, I will analyze it and I know that the way you react when a a picture looks like this is you do this or that or whatever. And so when you think about... All the dynamic changes that happen when you're taking pictures. Let's say you're doing an outdoor wedding. You shoot into the sun. You shoot away from the sun. Um, You go inside. You go outside. Your white balance shifts, your color shifts, your contrast shifts. So you can't just apply a preset to it and then have that, like, make your wedding day look amazing. And I'm just using weddings as an example because it's one of the industries that's most affected by this. But this actually spans across all different genres of photography. And so – Uh, using AI is going to be a very powerful thing because if you can have AI edit a wedding in five or 10 minutes, and then you just spend a half a day going through making sure it did its work. And then you find, oh, it's 98% there. I just have to do a 2% edits to like a few shots. You can turn a wedding around in a few days. And typically a busy wedding photographer shoots on average 40 weddings a year. And so they're eight weeks out on edits. And if you can turn something around in a few days, there's actually a video of a guy who turned around a wedding in 52 minutes and legit looking shots. So point being, you know, maybe if you're an editor, maybe the editing, uh, maybe, maybe editing jobs, some editing jobs are at risk, but I don't think that like, you know, you can't hire a machine to go shoot a wedding. So
1: it it sounds like you kind of can at this point.
0: Well, the machine doesn't know what moments to capture and all that and it can't move around. It's gotta be a robot, right? You can't just show up with a camera with a with a with a robot. Now the post editing, I still think we're we're there with the post the post production. AI is here. Like it's not it's not about to arrive. It's here. There are programs where you can create your own pictures from scratch, which we'll get into some really like some some industries I see, uh for instance like product photography, new companies. If you can construct a human being from scratch with AI and put your product in front of it and make it look realistic, I see small and up and coming companies that don't have really large budgets for huge campaigns. I see them. Like if there's some service kind of an in-between guy guys, like, look for $2,000 I can create with your product, like, uh, you know, a full book of images, uh, with artificial human beings. You don't have to hire models. You don't have to hire photographers and all that. I do see AI, uh, working into that portion of our industry weddings um you know a lot of modeling stuff like uh, if a model wants to build their portfolio they need to work with a human being to do that so i i I think that it will penetrate into certain areas and then other areas are safe for the foreseeable future until at least hopefully we're like long and gone but i'd love to hear your thoughts because i know you use ai
1: you know, I really, I really do love AI. I recently purchased a full subscription for Midjourney, and it didn't take me long to sort of figure out the prompts, to figure out the seeds, and like the the, the things necessary, and and how uh, different descriptors are weighted in the prompt. And for those of you that don't know what Midjourney is, basically, it's a Discord server service where you type in a prompt and you describe a scene as narratively and as detailed as possible. And you you divide um, you divide the narrative by commas, you divide it by semicolons, and there's different weights on that as well. Um, you can change the rendering style. You know, if you want it to look like um, if you want it to look like Studio Jubilee, you can do that. If you want it to look like a Dali painting, you can do that. I generally uh, try to stay within photorealistic, and there's a you know there's different inputs you can, and commands you can put in that change it to look like realistic photos. So that being said, there's a lot of ways that um, you can tweak an image and continue to build upon this idea where you change small details and you make it super super replicable until finally, like, okay, you've got your background engineered, you've got the subject engineered, you've got the look engineered, you know, like one thing is if I want to create a brutalist image that's very void of life, I can combine, you know, the words brutalism, Eastern Europe, and Heliot uh who's a top-of-the-line fashion uh, designer who's very, very dark and very minimal, edgy, moody, that sort of thing. And it, it it takes it in a direction that I like it. Now, from those three general broad terms... I can really isolate things and start working on objects. I can start working on colors of hair. I can start working on complexion. I can start working on uh, scene, uh, cinema. I can even input, it's insane. I can even input specific cameras and lens, lenses that it would be using at different f-stops. So you do have that subject background separation that you want. And, you know, you can input the different specific types of lighting that you want. Most people in the photography era uh, area of mid-journey stay with cinematic lighting or cinematic grades. And when you type in cinematic grade, it actually starts uh, harmonizing the two major colors in your photo. So like if you have teals in the shadows, it'll be more towards orange in the highlights and the mids. And the same goes for pinks and greens. And so it, it balances the shots as well. And also it, it takes a compositionally balanced shot for you also. So if you're going to type in any sort of architectural shot or any sort of subject versus background shot or environment, it knows the rule of thirds, it knows distortion, it knows spatial um, s- spatial composition, which is absolutely insane. It takes a lot of photographers years to develop that eye. As well as that, I've started building these sort of editorial slash, fa- uh, slash fashion style inspired images on mid-journey and it is it's absolutely insane what you can create and I'm starting to get to the point where I can create a, a multi like multiple series with uh, more or less the same model, same hairstyle, um, same clothing and everything and you can create almost an entire lookbook. And so you know we're coming really close to be, to a specific fashion brand. you know we're, we're coming exceedingly close to being able to recreate um, a fashion item shoot by creating the model and the pose and everything like that. And then you can even create the purse on mid-journey and on a white background. And then you can just go into Photoshop and manipulate it with the liquify tool. It wouldn't take that long. You know, and then you select it and you can just drag and drop into the thing. You can drag their logo, their label, put it on the bag. And it's so similar to product photography because a lot of product photography uses vectors now. You know, they they go in and the details, they actually just draw the shape of the shadows and the lights and the the highlights. And then they just color over them the appropriate color to make sure that it is 100% refined. So I know there was one photographer in Germany named Sebastian Kortmann. And he's a cinematographer and he's also been using AI and he actually developed a full editorial series for a purse company in Germany, I believe. And the whole story is it's, it's, it's yellow, orange, it's a cine still film style grade and style shot, which he got AI to produce, which is insane. And it's of this woman with a high fashion purse, an immaculate model in, a, in like a war, uh, an orange trench coat, stepping off the subway from multiple angles. And it maintained the same model, the same hairstyle, and the same color style all the way through. And the images were absolutely perfect.
0: So what you're saying is we should get MidJourney to sponsor our, uh, our podcast because yes. you're an endorse- you're an endorser.
1: Yeah, well, here's the, the the crazy thing is, I don't know what the workaround is this yet, but uh, you can't copyright anything you make from mid-journey quite yet.
0: Well, I think it would be an effective tool for mood boarding. You know, if you're in a creative rut, it sounds like it would be cool. It's like, do a little bit of thinking for me. Oh, yeah, that, that's the, that's kind of the vibe I was going for. You filled in some of the voids for me. Now I, gotta, I, I can picture a model. I can picture a stylist. I can picture a makeup artist I want to use for this. So I do think that there are uh, some effective uh tools that it gives you um
1: it's it's sorry it's funny you mentioned the mood boarding because i pitched to a brand called elwood and they've got uh they just released a catalog a camo catalog and they're a minimalist brand out of la and so i pitched to them with this mood board generated by ai of having dead leaves and branches in front of a white backdrop super minimalist and it's it came out insanely well
0: that's awesome that's awesome man yeah, see, that, so so how much is mid-journey, just out of curiosity?
1: It's, it's $30 a month.
0: Hey, you know, $30 a month is uh, what a lot of us pay for websites and things like that, but uh, I would gladly pay $30 a month to, uh, you know, have some thoughts generated that could maybe make me some money. So pretty cool stuff. Yeah, artificial intelligence is going to, like I said, it's, it's going to be here to stay. I do think that there are some uh, areas, like especially with editing – it, it, it could it could take over some people's jobs i don't think with retouching we're quite there yet i you know skin is not algorithmic and data and you know it's all ones and zeros artificial intelligence like trying to organically recreate skin to, to look unique is still we're not there yet and uh, it may be several years before we are there yet are listening to the f11 photography podcast uh, artificial intelligence is definitely the future that's one of the things i wanted to talk about today um, i think the next subject i want to bring up so uh, you know and you, you you chime in if there's anything you see in the future Uh, you tell me, but there's, there's obvious things that are happening in the future. Like DSLRs are dead. Mirrorless is the future. That's where we're at. And we want mirrorless to be the future because, uh, the flange distances and everything on these cameras allow manufacturers to make smaller lenses and in the case of uh, some Canon lenses they said well we'll make, we'll make them bigger but we'll give you a whole another stop of light you weren't able to get before something like a 28 to 70 f2 and Canon ha- holds a patent for a 70 to 135 f2 which is very intriguing being able to shoot at f2 throughout that range uh, apparently they also have a patent for a 24 to 105 2.8. We've all heard of 24 to 105 f4s, but you always have to get the 24 to 70 f2.8. So if they're able to come out with a 24 to 105 2.8, that is all thanks to mirrorless. And so mirrors are dead, DSLRs are dead. That's definitely something uh, that I see happening with the future of photography. Uh, the next major innovation I see is the global shutter. Are you familiar with the global shutter?
1: Not so much.
0: Okay, so for those of you listening and you don't know what the hell a global shutter is, you may see some phenomenon. And I know Brandon knows what I'm talking about here because he does videography. So uh, when you shoot on a mirrorless camera and you're shooting on like a wide lens and you jerk the camera right to left, you'll start seeing some weird shifting going on. That's called shutter roll. And shutter roll happens because – so the way your shutter reads data, it reads it from top to bottom. Okay. And so when you take a picture, it's not like when you you shoot on film and the film just sees all this light hit it at the same time and boom, it like burns it into the emulsion and then the shutter closes and that's your shot. That's not how it works. Digital, with digital, you have your sensor and everything reads from top to bottom. And That's why some of you, when you're using electronic shutter and you're like, why do I have these banding light, these bands across my, my frame, it's because those are the blades of the shutter getting in the way of the flash and they're not in synchronization and you're having issues. And that is a direct result of, uh, the current state of the shutters that we use. And so, and the way that they read out the global shutter is something that's evaded, uh, these camera manufacturers for years. I honestly don't care who comes up with it first. I'm all into capitalism. Let's if Nikon comes out with it first, great. If Sony, Canon, whoever, please come out with the global shutter because the global shutter functions just like a film. It's just like it flashes, it reads everything across the sensor all at once, and then it closes. And so that's where we're, we're, we're heading. That's something I want to see happen. And you know another example of that, some of you who shoot an electronic shutter, if you see someone kicking a soccer ball, when you shoot a mechanical sh- shutter and you shoot at like 1,000th of a second and you have a soccer ball, the soccer ball looks like a soccer ball. But an electronic shutter, the soccer ball will turn into an oval because you'll have that weird warping, that shutter warp. The rolling shutter, and so uh, global shutter is hopefully what we'll see, and I think that'll be the future of photography. I think it'll be at least a half a decade before you start seeing it on like fifteen hundred dollar, two thousand dollar cameras. I think this is going to be a five thousand dollar and up type of feature for the time being, until the Canon, Sony, and all of them decide, yeah, we'll let the peasants have the global shutter. It'll come eventually, but that's something that I see uh, in the future happening for sure. Uh, I have a wish list I want to talk about, but do you have anything you'd like to contribute? Things that you you see happening in the future?
1: You know, I'm not as technically oriented as you. Um, You know, it's, I'll just put it plain and simple. I'm not much of a gearhead. So, in terms of things I see coming in the future, uh, you know, off the top of my head, of course, I think LiDAR might become. A bigger thing. I think a, a digital 3D experience might expand as well. You know, I think I think we might see integration of AI into cameras in the, in the long future. You know, we might see something, I think we might see something where, I think it was already developed, where you have a, like a box with like multiple lenses that take it at different depths of field. And then from there, you have AI uh, basically juice up the algorithm to where you can decide where the blur fall off is, because you have all the data at every, um, at every depth of field. So I'm thinking that might be um, more popular as like an all-in-one system.
0: Might be. Well, you bring up something about, uh, you say you're not technical, but everybody can relate to what I'm about to talk to you. And this is this is something that I, this is a, a gripe, maybe a mini rant I have. I have a couple mini rants I'm going to go on today. And it is technology-based, but it's also uh, something that non-technological people can identify with, and that is, how cumbersome and terrible camera apps are! Uh, there's no like if there's if there's a the grass is greener conversation and one's like, man, my Canon app for my phone sucks. I'll bet you Nikon users have it better. It's like, no, they hate their app too. Sony users hate their app, and Fuji users hate their app. The thing that I don't understand is, camera manufacturers can uh, invest all this money and and make these incredible optics that are just mind blowing and have these cameras that do some amazing things. But for whatever reason, they can't go to Apple or Google or one of these you know, people who make Android phones or whatever and just hire a fucking software developer who can de- design an app for a phone that doesn't suck. And I don't understand why this is so hard because software is the future. I mean, every you know, as we proved during the pandemic, you can run entire companies remotely from a laptop. So – everything is is happening over these ones and zeros uh, you know over these fiber optic cables and all that and you know everything's digital that's that's the future so why can't they with the amount of talent that is out there that you could just hire like canon could just be like look we're going to pay this dude a quarter million dollars a year to just spearhead this operation to get our app to not suck and and i don't understand what is uh what is why it's taking so long for camera manufacturers to figure that out. It's 2023. And, you know, you look at all the crazy stuff you can do with a phone and, and but it's like, Oh, well I have to like go into this menu and I have to go to the sub menu to turn Wi-Fi on or Bluetooth on. And then I gotta, and then I gotta go to my phone and I gotta make, I gotta have it find my, my, my uh, camera. And it's like, you know, maybe make it like when you log into like Paramount plus, which is like, here's a code and then you like pull up your you pull up your phone and it's like oh the camera's saying the code is 4523 okay 4523 boom they're connected you know and then it'll ask you do you want me to like dump jpeg versions of uh, all these shots that you're shooting in raw to your camera just so you have backups and you you can if you don't have like a second card or something you're like yes check it and you're done like that's the way it needs to work and the user experience is just garbage and i've you know i've always like about once a year i i re-download these apps to see if they've been improved. And all I remind myself is why I don't use these apps in the first place. I don't know who's designing them. And, and you know, I'm on multiple systems, by the way. I, I use uh, Fuji as well. So I, I, I love my Canon cameras, I love my Fuji cameras, but both of them suck. Sony users complain that it sucks. Nikon users complain that it sucks. I don't even know if Panasonic Lumix has an app. But everybody hates their app. And so uh, that, this is my wish list for the future uh, we're, we're on this portion of the of the podcast, which is that is something that is on my wish list that I want to see uh, moving forward with camera manufacturers.
1: Yeah, you know, it's I don't have as much of a gripe with uh, Nikon Snapbridge. It used to be an absolute nightmare to do. But being that I shoot all my videos on Nikon and it doesn't have the reversible screen, I do connect my Nikon to the Snapbridge and then switch it to video mode. And I can change everything from there and make sure that I've got, you know, everything lined up just from my phone. And so I don't have to keep getting up, hitting record, sitting back down. You know, it's, you know, the, the chair might be moved out of the way. Like things might change. I might accidentally hit the tripod. I can just hit record from my phone. But I mean, for for taking photos, it's absolute garbage. But <laughs> but for the video aspect, I do enjoy the Nikon app.
0: This is Jason Berkman, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. So in, in stills photography... If I take a picture of you at ISO 100, F8, 1 one-hundredth of a second, I can look that up later and see what my settings were. I was surprised to learn that there's no way to do that with video. Like, you can't see what your f-stop was. There's no, like, EXIF data on video. Like, you can't shoot a video. You, you, you'll know what, if you right-click, it'll say, hey, this was shot at 4K. 30 frames per second, or whatever. Right. But in that data, it can't tell you what lens you were using. It can't tell you what your shutter speed was. Cause maybe you have some weird frame dropouts and you accidentally bumped your, your shutter speed, you know, when you were out of sync or something, uh, or, you know, you don't know what depth of field you're at. And so that I, I personally, you know, want to know that because like I do video tests for YouTube. Sometimes I'm testing out a lens and I'm like, shit, what were my settings? Was I at F eight there f 5.6? Cause some people want to know the difference. And you know, I have to like remind myself to write down my settings. And so I just, I thought that was a bit odd that, uh, you know, as advanced as the video industry is, they don't have a, an EXIF data type thing like stills. Am am I right on that? You can't, you can't, you can't look that up.
1: Right. That's, I think that's a more of a third party thing. I know, um, I know, I think I know black magic has like, if you lo- upload into a black magic software, they usually have a capacity to like tell you all those things in the frame rate and that sort of thing. Um, but it's, it's a lot of third party, third party apps that can tell you that kind of stuff. It's not really like native to your laptop or, you know, anything like that.
0: Well, so for instance, like, um, you know, the contacts between your lens and your camera tell you all that data as to why they can't embed that into video files. I just, I don't know. That's something I would like to see. Just something simple, something that I, I would like to see the entire industry get on board with because if I use a Nikon Z-whatever-the-fuck numbers you guys use, and I use a Canon, and then I use a Panasonic, and I just go take a bunch of stills with it, and I import all those files in the Lightroom, it'll just tell me like with those stills, like, oh, yeah, you're at F8, 1 one-hundredth of a second, ISO 100. And it doesn't matter what camera brand I use. And so for stills, camera brands and Lightroom all gone on board with each other. I don't see why they couldn't get on board with, like, Premiere and you know, using these video codecs and all that. Like, I don't understand why they don't do it. And maybe I'm just, maybe I'm the weirdo and everybody else in the industry is like, it doesn't matter. We don't care about that kind of stuff. But I, I, I like to know as much about what I was shooting as possible to get better at shooting video. And sometimes knowing like my F stop I mean, I know obviously if I'm shooting at a super shallow depth of field, I'm like, okay, I know I'm shooting wide open here, but you know, maybe my ISO was a little different or something like, why is this noisy? Did I bump my ISO? Like just, you know, to me- I think that would be cool, but maybe you know, it's, maybe it's not something that, that the video industry cares about.
1: That might, that might honestly thinking about it now, you might have to use something beyond a consumer grade video camera to get that kind of stuff. Like a, like a black magic pocket cam that would probably tell you, cause I can't imagine them not having it in the industry. Yeah. I don't know, man. I mean, I'm not a
0: professional cinematographer or videographer, so I don't know that. It's just, I know that like on my Canon cameras, on my Fuji cameras, like, Anytime I ask somebody who claims to be a videographer, like, oh, yeah, you can't do that. I'm like, there's no data out there. I'm like, oh, okay. So I think it would be kind of cool to see. Maybe it's just too much of an undertaking for the industry to do it, but that's just something I would like to see on my wish list. Uh, but, yeah, that's, that's one thing. Uh, my other rant of the day I want to go on, uh, I just talked about – how I would love to see uh, the apps get a little better. This one to me makes a shitload of sense. And there's actually a change.org petition to get this done, which is when you go to the Apple store and you buy a new iPhone or whatever, you go uh, and you buy a new Android phone or you get one thrown in for free with your cell phone plan. Uh, There is one thing that these billions, with a B, of phones all have in common. It is, one, they all have cameras in them. And two, all of these cameras, or phones, have tracking devices in them. So if somebody steals your phone, and you're an iPhone user, you can go to Find My Phone, and you know where your phone is, assuming that it's on. Okay, well... This is something that is getting thrown in for free with my cell phone plan. Now, let's say you go out and you buy a $6,000 camera and someone steals it. Wouldn't you fucking want to know where that thing is? Okay, and so if someone's listening, they're like, well, do you understand how big of an undertaking it would be? It's, well, let me let me tap the brakes on that. I owned in 2012 a Canon 6D and the Canon 6D inside the uh, hot shoe, under the hot shoe, had a GPS device in it. So anytime I go anywhere in the world and I take a picture, and then I would go into Lightroom. Lightroom has an area where you have a map. It'll show me where I took every single picture. And this is, a, this is an 11-year-old technology. So the ability to track where my pictures are taken has been in Canon cameras for years, and it would just slowly drain your battery. But it wasn't that big of a battery suck. So if it can triangulate satellites to show you where pictures are taken, then it can triangulate camera it can triangulate satellites to show you where your camera is. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do that. And there's no reason why camera manufacturers uh, shouldn't be able to do that and put that in their new cameras. And you know, this is something that you get for free with your phone. Well, you pay for your phone and it comes with your phone. The only component they have to figure out on it is they have to have an account assigned to your camera. So when you purchase a camera, you have to register your camera. I mean, they'll have to force you to register to use that feature. That way, if you sell your camera, then you transfer ownership, and then the camera will then transfer to their account, just like it would with an iPhone. If you sell an iPhone, then you take out the SIM card, somebody puts a new SIM card in it, and then their Apple ID then is assigned to that phone.
1: Yeah, and saying that, it's like this isn't out of the ordinary. If you've ever bought anything DJI, you know that each item from DJI that you buy, whether it be a GoPro, a gimbal, or, or, you know, um, a drone, they, they want all of your information. The Chinese want everything and they want your, they want your app on the app has to be on your phone at all times and they're connected to it. So it's, it, you know, it's a big problem. If, if you're not the type of person that, uh, enjoys the invasion of privacy, um, that's already happening and it happening and it's a must for all DJI equipment.
0: Well these are the same people are like they're coming after me man they they of course uh, tweets that from their phone and Twitter's tracking all of their data while they do it it's like yeah I don't think you quite understand how this works you're already being tracked twenty four seven and frankly if somebody steals a six thousand dollar camera from me I want to know where it is I don't I want to track it down that's a situation yeah and yes I have insurance and it's good to have insurance but don't you want to know where your stuff is, man? Like, and I don't know anybody who, when their camera gets stolen, is was like, boy, I sure am glad I don't have a way to figure out where my camera is right now. They're all going to be like, fuck, what, I wish I had this little tracking device thing. And I don't understand why they do it. So, so if you're listening and you're like, oh man, this is hopeless. Well, I do have a way to combat it a little bit. And once again, I have to go to Apple for help and it's not a perfect solution, but I buy AirTags. You can get AirTags for $20. Uh, you can cut the lining of your bag out and shove the air tag in there, stitch it up or whatever, and you'll always have an air tag in your bag that'll track your bag. Of course, it only tracks where your bag is, so if people steal your camera and the first thing they do is they take it to a pawn shop and leave the bag uh, you know, in a trash bin somewhere in a dumpster, then you only know where the bag is. But it is a kind of a Band-Aid method to get you through, um, but I don't think it's ideal. I think that it can be optional. You can toggle it on, toggle it off. Say, track my camera, and then that way I should be able to log in, uh, you know, to a web browser like canon.com/slash track my camera. They're like, cool. What's your Canon ID? Oh, okay. We see that you own a Canon EOS R5. Are you wondering where that is? Yes. Okay, it's here. It's it's. I could, have we triangulated it down to this street corner? And it's like, okay, that's where my camera is. I don't think that that is a big ask. I think that it's something that um, you know, if camera companies really wanted to do right, uh, they should include standard. And yes, I am putting the onus on them because, um, as they raise the prices of cameras and, you know, lenses and all that, and they get more expensive, uh, you know, that's, that's a more sensitive topic for us if our stuff gets stolen. And, you know, like in the city of San Francisco, camera theft is up like a shitload right now. As a matter of fact, the change.org thing started, I believe, out of San Francisco because of the amount of theft of people, you know, you show up. You show up with a, a pelican case. A pelican case is a way of advertising to the world. Hey, come rob me because I have a lot of really expensive stuff in here. But um,
1: yeah, I I nearly got robbed at haight Ashbury last time I was in San Fran during COVID. I went to haight Ashbury with a bunch of the homies. I had all my ge- film gear and cameras on me. I look like I looked like Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now the way I was walking around the uh, the street. And there were like there weren't normal people walking around there. It was it was like vagabonds. Like the whole street was, was vagabonds, you know, like ponchos, little, little tents on those corner of the streets. It was vile. And I had several guys just cause I was taking street photos. They, they were whacked out on whatever they were taking at the time. And they confronted me and my friends and started getting handsy and were like grabbing at my cameras. They're like, they're like, you can't fucking take photos of us. Like, you know, you know, this is our fucking street, man. You know, they, they went full 1969 on me and you know, we, we had to get out of there. So, you know, that's totally believable.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Like I hear a lot of street photographers when they shoot in places like San Francisco, they have to get gaffers tape and put it over their Fuji logo or their Leica logo or whatever, because they don't want people to know what they've got. They just want it to look like a nondescript little camera. That's yeah. It's just a little pocket camera. They don't need to know it's a, it's a $6,000 Leica or anything like that. Um, but yeah, man, it's a, uh, it's crazy. And you know, I've had to look over my shoulder a little bit when I shoot street. Um, and I, you know, have to, double, I I really have to think about what camera I want to take with me. Uh, but I just think that it's not a big ask. I really do think that these manufacturers could hire somebody from Apple and, you know, Hey, we're going to pay somebody who even collaborate with them. Like we're collaborating with Apple, the people who made the air tags, we're going to, we're going to pay Apple a million dollars or whatever, to just help us develop this technology to put it in our cameras. Uh, And then that way, if your camera gets stolen, you can find it, you could even make it to where it's like, not tied to your camera's battery, but you get like some sort of a little slot in your hot shoe that you can just open up like a little compartment and then you put those little – I forget what those little cylindrical batteries are that you use for like your scale and like you can use them for older cameras. I forget what they're called, but you know, one of the little batteries and then it's always on. So even if somebody removes the battery out of your, your compartment – the GPS uh, signal is still pinging and I can, you know, every five minutes or so I can update, you know, and look, Oh, it's, it's on the street corner or whatever. It's on, Hey Ashbury. And some, some dude who mugged me now has my camera.
1: <laughs> yeah. Using it to stir like Modelo soup or something like that. Yeah. No, I, for, I, for one in the, in the wish list of things, I definitely, and I'm going to beat a dead horse here. Uh, Nikon needs to, catch up with their autofocusing. You know, they, they've they made a line of mirrorless cameras and the autofocus is far behind Sony cameras released five years ago still. I mean, it's adequate, but it, if you're in low light situations, the autofocus is terrible. And you know, don't even think about using third-party lenses. Um, I went and shot at South by Southwest, and I was using my Viltrox 85 millimeter 1.8. Of course, I was shooting wide open because it was late at night. It was around 1:30, and some of the- you shot wide open. Oh yeah, <laughs> you usually stopped down. <laughs> usually, usually I shot wide open because um, using the camera I was using, I just I just didn't want to push my ISO to twenty thousand that night. Um, so shooting shooting 1.8 from a distance the the autofocus was absolutely terrible and it was you know i wanted to deliver i was getting paid good money for this shoot and um it was this south american uh, record label they're called fama collective f a m a like brilliant group of artists all from um south america and mexico like absolutely great performance you should check them out but I ended up having to I ended up turning autofocus off because I'm just like I'm I'm missing I'm missing shots here and thank goodness the Viltrox has a great focusing ring and so I was able to hit more shots on manual focus. So and that's that's with a Nikon Z six, which isn't their worst camera, not their best, but they really they've gotta up their game and you know the focus hunting even in broad daylight, trying to capture the eyes and the face um, with the smallest focus area is an absolute nightmare.
0: It's funny you mention that because, like, as somebody who shoots on both Canon and Fuji, I have the same complaints about Fuji, and I very much have those same complaints about Fuji GFX. So that's a, I did a video on my YouTube channel, as a matter of fact, where I said, hey, here's the top five things I want to see in a Fuji GFX 100S Mark II, which is not a real camera. It's just a, a, a concept at this point. But when you own a camera for a year or two, you start thinking, okay, here's the things that I don't like about it that I hope to see in the next version of it. And one of the things that I wanted to see in the Fuji GFX is I wanted to see way better autofocus. So, to your point, when I shoot in the studio on my Fuji GFX, I put it in manual focus. Now, thankfully, when I'm shooting in the studio, I'm shooting at F8 and F11, so... I tend to, you know, have my model sit in the pocket of where my focus is, but if I'm doing closer headshots, they can easily move out even at f8. I mean, there's, that's pretty shallow when you're super close, and so uh, I, 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 it's just, it's garbage. I mean, I'll, as much as a Fuji GFX camera costs, when it hits, you get a portfolio shot. It's one of the best shots you've ever taken, as far as how beautiful it is, as long as you compose it well and all that from a geek out, look at my technology of my dynamic range and my colors and all that standpoint. Yes, when you nail on the GFX, you're just like, oh yeah, this is why I bought this camera. But getting there, it's like shooting on manual uh, focus film cameras, medium format uh, manual focus film cameras. And the autofocus on it is pretty useless. It's less of a issue with Fuji X, but it is funny. I am in Fuji forums and they're like, you know, they have the new X-H2S and the X-H2, which came out and they are good compared to their predecessors but listening to the uh the Fuji fanboys be like oh my god we're finally catching up with Sony and Canon I'm like no this is about as good as my Canon cameras were in 2018 you guys are not there yet it is good for Fuji this is a big step in the right direction but i mean if you look at the latest versions of i mean the the R3 has eye autofocus i can just look at you and it'll It'll, it'll like read my eye and go, oh, I'm going to focus on you. And then I move my eye to the left and it'll focus, like, I don't even have to like back button focus. I just look at things and the camera focuses on it with, by reading my eye. So to say that uh, Fuji is, is caught up with Canon and Sony is like absolutely ridiculous to even con- consider that. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast.
1: Another thing, another gripe I have is um, you know, years ago, Sony released the A7S III, and that's probably one of the one of the most ground groundbreaking, influential cameras that we've ever seen at a at a consumer prosumer grade. And uh, why? Because it can record in camera log S log one, two, and three at extremely high quality with amazing autofocus and an insane ISO uh, range. And Here we are with Nikon. They released their new lineup of cameras and all the way up to the Z7 II, just before the Z9, there's no in-camera log uh, possibility. You can't record and log without using an external recorder. And not only that, but... There was only one singular proprietary system to record and log with Nikon, and that's the um, that's the Ninja Atomos Five, which is another five hundred dollars to record log. And not only that is, if you look at any comparison, side by side comparison between the between NLog on a Nikon Z7 II and the Sony A7S III, the amount of noise that you capture in in log with those cameras and that that uh, recorder is astonishingly higher than with an A7S3 and you can't you can't even record past 60 fps at 4K because beyond that at, at 120 or any other slow mo uh, the ninja burns in all the all the icons on the screen so your footage will have the um, the f-stop indicator your your histogram and everything so if they're trying to boast a hybrid camera in an age where content is straddling the line between both photo and video for our, uh, for creators and photographers alike, it's, it's a massive problem.
0: Yeah, that can, I mean, that can get a little crazy. I have the Atomos Ninja 5. It's a really, really cool device. And, um, I've, I've, you know, I, thankfully Canon got that stuff figured out. I can just record straight video and I don't have to burn in my, my F8 and my histogram and all that, but that's gotta be super frustrating. Um, another thing that, bugs me that I hope manufacturers implement. And this is something, and I'm not bragging on Canon because I'll call them out when I don't like things, but something that Canon has done that I want to see every manufacturer do. And I think Nikon may have a variation of this. You can verify because you're a Nikon user. I have a Canon R5. I have a Canon R7 and I used to own a EOS R. All the Canon R series bodies that are over a thousand dollars. When you turn the camera off, it has a window that goes down over the sensor. So if you're out in the middle of the fucking Saharan desert and you want to change lenses, your sensor is not getting exposed to sand. And then you put the new lens on and then you turn the power on. And then about a second after you there's a latency, a second delay, you hear the, the window open back up. And then your sensor is exposed. And how good is this technology from Canon? I've owned my EOS R for two years this month. And I've cleaned the sensor zero times, not once. And when I do a test to see if there's anything on my sensor, I see nothing. It's, 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 it's works perfectly. And, you know, on my Fuji X mount, which is a a crop sensor, it it doesn't do that, which I guess is less of an issue because it's a smaller sensor, but holy shit with my GFX, like my GFX sensor is like huge. Like I can like, I can fit like three fingers, four fingers into the sensor. That's how big that opening is. Uh, And they don't have anything that goes down over the sensor to protect it. And I actually have a picture of my saliva with COVID on it when I was uh, on vacation. Uh, Actually, it was a bead of sweat. I think it was a bead of sweat. Maybe it came out of my mouth. Anyway, either way, I was at the Grand Canyon, and I was changing lenses on my GFX. And I remember it was a bead of sweat or just a piece of, like, spit coming out of my mouth just went boom, right on the sensor. And so I have all these pictures of the Grand Canyon. I didn't bring a cleaning kit with me because I forgot it. And I'm out here in the middle of the Grand Canyon. All my pictures of the Grand Canyon just have, like, this bead of COVID on it. And then I have to like Photoshop out. I finally got a sensor when I got home from vacation, but I stopped using my GFX cause like, I don't feel like Photoshopping all this shit. And I'm like, at, I'm at, we went to white sands and there's like all these r- beautiful ripples in the sand. And there's just this big fucking dot on it that I had to like, Clone stamp.
1: That happens so often to me. When I when I stop down to like F11 or just past F5.6, I start seeing little like squiggly dust lines in my sensor. And I'm like, I'm like, this sensor was exposed for less than a second and a half. And it's the most frustrating thing because when you're in a studio and you've got a white backdrop. You see, you know, you're spending way too much time, you know, compounding each photo, just taking squiggles out with the stamp tool. And if you, if it's a dynamic background where you like part of that squiggles in, in light and the part of it's in the shadow, it's, it, you know, it makes you want to put your fist through the laptop, you know, through the screen.
0: Yeah. Just another reason to shoot at 1.2. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah no kidding. <laughs> you don't to worry about it. And then, you know, shoot 85. And of course, the wider the lens. Uh, and the more it shows up so yeah, you know I had yeah, that's that's not fun um, So yeah, that's that's something we'd like to see is the window that goes over the sensors from all manufacturers uh, Maybe it's I don't know, maybe Canon patented it but, but doesn't Nikon have some sort of a feature that does
1: that? Um, no. Not in your camera, <laughs> you know what I actually I can't remember I just watched a fro nose photo where he can pay he compared the Sony a1 the Nikon Z9 and what's the what's the big one? The big Canon one was it like an R6? The,
0: the the their flagship? Their yeah, their flagship. R three.
1: The R three. Yeah, he compared all those and that's what he liked about Canon was that shutter cover and that yeah. but yeah, Nikon doesn't have it.
0: Yeah, like so my R seven, so the the R three is a six thousand sixty five hundred dollar camera. So you'd expect yeah. some crazy technology like that, right? Right. The R seven is their flagship crop sensor. It's fifteen hundred dollars. It has that. The R eight is fifteen hundred dollars. It has that. Um, I, I don't think the R10 has it, which it's a 999 So you, know, you have to be over $1,000, but um, all professional cameras are over $1,000. So basically any professional camera Canon makes is going to have that built in. And I don't see why other companies don't do it. Maybe it's a trademark thing. I don't know. Maybe, or patent. I don't know. Uh, maybe Canon has a patent on that window technology, but I'm sure that like, Nikon or whoever can make a different version of it. So I'd like to see that and all manufacturers, not just for selfish reasons. I want to see my friends be able to enjoy that feature that I have with my Canon as well, my friends who don't shoot on Canon. So uh, I'd love to see the industry go in that direction. Uh, another thing I would like to see is I'd like to see the whole megapixel thing go away. I was like, oh, we're increasing the megapixels. I own a 100 megapixel camera, and it's great, and I love it. Uh, I crop a lot. I shoot a lot of commercial stuff. But the one thing that I would like to see invested in way more than megapixels is dynamic range because cameras don't see like our eyes see. So if I take a dark skinned subject, you know, and put them in the shade and I look behind their shoulder and I see like a a skyline that's, you know, 2 p.m., super bright. My eyes have the ability to see all the highlight detail and the sky behind them. But then I can look at the dark skinned subject in front of me in the shade and still see details in their body. And if I take a camera and I try to take a picture of that, my camera is going to go, okay, you have to pick one or the other. Do you want to see um, this very well illuminated uh, subject and then just bright white? Or do you want to see these highlights preserved, but then you just see eyes and teeth? And that's a problem. And the only way you can combat that is with flash. The only way you can do dynamic compression is with flash. I want to, get, I want to take two things and I want to get them closer to each other. And, you know, with my Fuji GFX, I have seen some innovations that allow me to, you know, combat that, but that that's a very expensive camera. And so I want to see camera manufacturers make a really big effort into increasing the dynamic range of their cameras because, you know, it, people, like, there are phones that have marketing campaigns where they have, like, a, a person of color on there who's like, I like this phone because the camera in there gets my skin tones accurate. And a lot of... You know you can't get skin tones accurate if you can't even expose the stuff properly. If you underexpose a subject, you know, your options are super limited uh, as far as pulling color out. It's like I was talking about in my uh, my in one of the episodes we did where I was talking about my Fuji GFX. My Fuji GFX, it'll see darker colors and shade, but it'll also pull the colors out of the shade, whereas, a Nikon or a Canon will go, that's just black. That area is just black. It's like, no, 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 there's stuff. In, there's a color that is being shaded and we need to pull that color out. And that's where I want to see uh, camera manufacturers invest. Because I think outside of Fuji and Nikon, who we've complained about their autofocusing, once the, once their autofocus gets like dialed in, dynamic range is the next spot. That's where, that's where we need to focus, in my opinion, as an industry. And when we're talking about technology is, is dynamic range.
1: I don't think I've ever found limitation in that. Um, I think that's a very specific situation. While I do think we should absolutely prioritize dynamic range over uh, megapixels, especially, uh, like, that's such a boasting point. Like, the the new Sony A9 is like, yeah, you get 120 megabytes in each shot. It's just like, why would I need that? Like, I need the range more than than that. Because the vast majority of people, like, the cost to shoot that, quality and that like size of file it compounds you know you're buying more laces you know you're slowing your your gear down your laptop down you need better processors and you need better storage you have to invest in sd cards and that sort of stuff so it's like it, it just doesn't make sense plus nobody's shooting billboards like let's be real and even if they are they can accomplish a billboard with a 24 megapixel camera you know easily
0: yeah, because viewing distance is what matters there. If you're if you viewed billboards at, at six inches, then yes, you would need more than a 24 megapixel camera. But you're viewing billboards from several hundred feet away, and so you know you can pull it off. I mean, magazine covers, uh, eight megapixels is all you need. Um, you know, and so the only reason why I use high megapixel cameras is with commercial jobs. A lot of times, you're asked to crop things a lot and in different ways. I've, I've had I've had brides ask me to crop like 90% of a picture out before. And so I like them for that reason. I do like the high megapixels, but I found, found the point where it's like I don't need any more for sure. And really 45, 50 megapixels is like the highest I've actually ever needed. I didn't get the Fuji GFX necessarily for the megapixels as much as I did for the color science and the dynamic range because the dynamic range is insane. But... It is a luxury medium format camera that most people aren't going to buy. So I'd like to see that technology trickle down into full frame and crop sensor because I think that uh, everybody deserves it.
1: Hi, I'm Jordan
0: Groby, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast.
1: I've got got one more thing that I'd like to see and this is more in the software side is I'd love for Adobe to include um, a monitor calibration software within their photography bundle. I think that Um, you know, a lot of people shoot on different systems. I know Apple has a pretty good sRGB display, but no same display is the same. Um, I remember, I remember I used to edit on an HP laptop and, you know, in order for me to calibrate, I couldn't get it to a place where I liked, especially when it's going to mostly be displaying on, on, um, uh, phones for Instagram as well as um, a lot of Mac stuff. And so I, I had my profile my Photoshop Everything was like dialed in sRGB um, the, the color science was Adobe 1998, which is the, the widest palette back then and then I had a viewing in sRGB And I was like, okay, everything's looking good And then when I'd see it on my phone it would like the yellows would be orange Like it was just a blown-out picture And so I had to incorporate a process of literally butchering my image through my laptop's monitor uh, just so I could see it correctly on a more balanced screen. And I don't know if a lot of people notice that sort of thing, but it was definitely something that um, it, it's just it's just tears and toil, and it would be so much easier if there was sort of like a universal um, software that Adobe could put out to sort of streamline that process.
0: Yeah, so I've run into that same problem that you've run into and what i'm going to say is probably a bit controversial because the majority of our listeners who are avid photographers are probably lightroom users but the best single best thing i ever did to calibrate my colors for lightroom was that i left lightroom and i started using capture one and uh i found that it was just easier to work with the color space in there uh this is just my personal experience uh i had i bought a new iMac and I was using Lightroom and I had years of Lightroom edits and all that. And for whatever reason, my external hard drives after a few days on my new hard drive, uh, I'm sorry, on my new iMac just disappeared. I could not find my external hard drives that had all my sessions on them. I'm like, I, I go you know, on YouTube looking up like, why are my hard drives not showing up? And so I went through and tried to figure out every way to get my hard drive to show up. Again, I updated things, I updated the software, updated my Mac, et cetera, went through all the processes. I could not get my hard drives to show up. I was buried about eight projects deep at that point. And I was like, I have to do something. And a lot of really uh, successful professionals who are way more successful than I am that I've talked with over the years, like, oh, well, you just use Capture One. And I downloaded the trial. uh, I checked it out and I was like, by the time I got out of those eight projects, I was like, okay, I'm a Capture One user now. And it was almost like uh, there was a cloud that got lifted Uh, over my files Uh, when it came to color editing i could see color better the color space made more sense and uh, that's just me you know it's just what works for me Uh, i'm not an endorsee or anything i don't endorse capture one they don't pay me i just i spend my money every month on the program because it helps me make money as a working professional and that is the episode today uh don't forget to check out our 10% off link for Luminar Neo, which is a really cool AI software. Um you can check us out at f11pod.com. You can check us out at f11pod on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube, etc. Uh I thank each and every one of you for checking out today's episode. Um check out our youtube channels as well uh, brandon gory has one and i have one kevin deal also going to be in the link in the description of this podcast uh, but yes until next time chase light not algorithms thank you for listening to today's episode For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.